Welcome to the Dhamma Podcast at Pariyati.org. The audio recording that follows was from a talk given by Paul Fleischman at Google in Mountain View, California, on March 14, 2012. More information about Pariyati and the resources it offers will follow this talk. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Paul R. Fleischman. Paul was born in New York, Newark, New Jersey in 1945. He went to the University of Chicago. He graduated from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and was trained in psychiatry at Yale, where he became the chief resident in psychiatry. Paul practiced psychiatry for 30 years and was honored by the American Psychiatric Association for his contributions to the study of psychiatry and religion. He retired from the practice five years ago. He has written many books and articles on psychiatry and the interface between psychiatry and religion. He's also written extensively about Vipassana meditation. Um, these books include uh, Cultivating Inner Peace and Karma and Chaos. He made his first trip to India in 1970 uh, when he was in medical school to study Ayurveda and preventive medicine. He returned to India in 1974 with his wife Susan, where they took their first Vipassana course in New Delhi with Mr. Asim Goyankar. Paul and Susan were appointed by Mr. Goenka to introduce the relevance of Vipassana meditation to the modern world. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Paul R. Fleshman. The question about why meditate was answered by somebody recently in the following way. They said that when they were a small child, they did a lot of things just to please their parents. But when they became an adolescent, they did a lot of things just to displease their parents. And when they became an adult, they did a lot of things, but they had absolutely no idea why they were doing them. <laughs> so meditation is a compass or a path, or a way of life that uh, gives you access to internal answers to how best to live. Vipassana meditation specifically has a number of features. First feature is it's taught only in 10-day residential courses. Why is it taught only in 10 days? I was at a conference a number of years ago. It was a continuing medical education conference at Harvard, and different people who were uh, involved with different kinds of meditation were, were explaining meditation to a medical audience. And they asked us beforehand, there was a little conference of the presenters, and the person who was in charge was saying, now, how long will it take you to explain meditation? How long will it take you to explain? One person said, it'll take me only 10 minutes to explain. Another person said, I need 20 full minutes before I could really explain meditation. They turned to me, how long will it take? 10 days. <laughs> I call this the worst marketing strategy ever developed. <laughs> there are something like 150 Vipassana meditation centers around the world. I've lost track. I don't know if anybody actually knows how many there are uh, many centers in the United States, three in California, many in Canada, many in Mexico, 
Venezuela, all, all every European country, India has about 40. So the question is, why does something with such a bad marketing strategy have so many successful outlets? Probably every single center is completely full. And if you want to take a course, you have to sign up ahead of time. There is a waiting list. California has three centers. All of them have waiting lists, so anybody who wants to take a course needs to plan ahead of time. And the question is, why do people want to waste 10 days of their life going away, giving up vacation time or personal time to learn meditation when meditation is taught at the why in 10 minutes? Of course, I hope to answer that in great uh, deal of detail throughout this hour, but the short form would be to learn something valuable, deeply, and well takes a little bit of time. Meditation is something that the more deeply you learn it, the more you'll be able to use it when you need it the most. If you learn to meditate under very ideal, easy circumstances, you will quickly feel some of the comforts of meditation, and that's very nice. But you can only then practice under ideal circumstances. Reminds me, those of you who've been parent of a child, a little child learns to walk, they hold on to the furniture in the living room, and they can walk. And the parents go, yay, they can walk. They're only eight months old, and they can walk. But you don't take them outside on the pavement at eight months old. So Vipassana is set up for a 10-day course so that you meditate during many different moods, many states of mind, many attitudes, many degrees of wakefulness, many degrees of being tired, many degrees of being hungry. At the end of 10 days, you can meditate through many different circumstances so that when you go home with this skill, you can apply this skill in all the different circumstances that you'll actually encounter when you plan to meditate on your own. Another feature of the Vipassana tradition is that it's taught entirely for free. There's no charge for the course. The centers run on donation. After a course, people are free to leave a donation or to not leave a donation. That's not because we are closet socialists. It's because Vipassana is a non-commercial communion or a group of friends. We say it's a path, a path that people are walking on together. So even the head teacher of our tradition, Mr. S. N. Goenka, did all his teaching for free. All of the Vipassana teachers teach for free. Everyone just gets it and passes it on. There's nothing to be gained. So there's no reason to tell students anything to please them. There's no need to sell a bill of goods. Everything stays totally honest because there's no motivation to increase the sales. And because everyone becomes something of a family or something of a community of friends. So one feature of Vipassana, taught only in 10-day courses, another feature taught entirely for free by people who've learned it for free and pass it on for free. A third important feature, and this is the one we'll spend the most time on, the signature of Vipassana meditation is that it's a focus on the sensations of one's own body. In a Vipassana course, one learns to meditate by observing oneself 
and the feelings that arise and pass in the body. And I'll go into this in quite a bit of detail, even in this hour. At the very least, the importance of meditating on sensations is that it's an entirely non-sectarian idea. It has nothing to do with any religion. Now, the word vipassana is a word that is found in the canon of writings, the collection of writings that are preserved in the Pali language, an ancient language related to Sanskrit. So vipassana is a word used by the Buddha, and it's preserved in the canon of teachings of the Buddha, Pali canon. And the Buddha said he practiced vipassana meditation, the word vipassana meaning realistic. You look at your body, you observe your body, you just observe what's there. It's not connected to any preconception, any belief, or any idea. So the question arises, isn't Vipassana Buddhism? And the answer is, it is not Buddhism because it is simply a form of meditation without any ism or belief system attached to it. There was a famous Englishman who became one of the preeminent writers on Buddhism in the 20th century. He's now deceased. He wrote many important books on Buddhism that introduced Buddhism to the West. He was a Pali scholar, Sanskrit scholar. And the funny thing was, he had started life as a Christian minister. When he was quite advanced in years, his wife, who's still alive and with whom I correspond, she asked him, she said, well, what exactly are you? Are you a Christian? Are you a Buddhist? He paused and he thought and he said, well, I think I'm a Buddhistic sort of person. And then he thought about that and he said, no, 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 no. Just just say I'm a human being. So Vipassana is a meditation tradition for human beings. The course begins with five vows not to kill, steal, lie, use intoxicants, or commit sexual misconduct. For the 10 days of the course, everybody goes alone as an individual. People don't go as a couple. If the couple goes, they're just living as individuals at the course. So these five vows, which are somewhat like the Ten Commandments, are also part of the Vipassana tradition. So the tradition does have a certain take on life or a certain spin to it, and that is a take that is explicitly ethical or explicitly moral. Vipassana is a tradition for people who do expect to live a moral and ethical life. It is not merely a psychological event. It is a psychological event with an ethical implication, and the ethical implication begins at the beginning of the course. This is partly a social thing, makes people better citizens, but it's actually built into the Vipassana tradition as a psychological self-protection. A person who is determined to try to live honestly and well will be more able to be comfortable and at ease with themselves as they meditate. A person whose mind is based upon doing ill will or harm to others is simply not going to be 
comfortable and safe inside themselves with themselves. The course also begins with a simplified form of meditation in which a person, rather than working with the sensations throughout the body, as I'll be explaining in detail, person begins just observing their breath. And that goes on for three days with very clear and explicit details throughout as to how to meditate. There's nothing mystical or unexplained in the course. And the course begins with these very simple rules and very simple guidance about watching your breath and beginning to meditate in that way. At the very least, if a person gets nothing else out of a course, they've gotten these two things. One is the intention to live ethically, and the other is a practice of concentration. At the very minimum, meditation is an effort in practicing concentrating on a soft, non-loud, non-glaring focus that's based upon one's own bodily life, the breath going in and out. One practices this for about three days. In the beginning, it's almost impossible. All of us are conditioned to attend to very high-intensity stimuli. Even reading a book is high-intensity stimuli. You're reading hundreds of words in a very short period of time, thousands and ten thousands of words in one reading session. Computer, obviously, is very high stimulation. Television is high stimulation. Driving is high stimulation. Almost everything we do is high stimulation. Even sitting and talking to one person is actually very high stimulation. So when you concentrate just on your breath, you're practicing concentration, but you're also practicing concentration on something that's very subtle and elusive. So actually, you're doing two things at once. You're learning to concentrate. You may well know how to concentrate. You're practicing how to concentrate on something that's very subtle and personal. Another feature of meditation that you get right away, as soon as you start the course, is that you've unplugged yourself from the outlet. There's been a transformation of which we are now sitting in the center of, in which human beings have become appendages to outlets. <laughs> so even, even in the old days, 2,500 years ago when the Buddha was meditating, it was difficult for people to unplug themselves. And today it's much more difficult to unplug yourself. And it's an enormous advantage to occasionally unplug yourself and reset your hard drive to a quieter or self-reflective mode. One way of describing that is our life hopefully is emitting some signal. We hope our life means something. We hope we're saying something of value or living something of value. But the ratio of signal to noise in our life, the ratio of signal is no low, the ratio of noise is high. Just to say something of impact requires attending to a very wide array of cultural and social stimuli. So 
when you enter a meditation course, agree to live in silence, begin to live by vows, begin to concentrate on your breath, you're reducing background noise and increasing the signal of who you feel yourself to be, how you experience yourself to be with higher density signal and lower density noise. Another language to describe this is you're augmenting auto-modulation. A great deal of the time we're being modulated from without. Even, for example, in this room, we sit together, we reach an agreement. Somebody says, put away your computer. We agree we'll start at 2 o'clock. There's external modulation. Of course, a meditation course also has external modulation. You agree to come for 10 days at this day, not that day. But a large percent of the time during meditation, you're uniquely absorbed in auto-modulation. You're modulating your speech, you're modulating your thought, you're modulating your attention, and that modulation is self-generated. It is not generated by social pressure, social expectation, external symbols, visual cues, etc. So, even before meditation begins, there's an enormous number of shifts in your way of being a person that are intrinsically of value. As you begin to meditate, whether it's the first three days where you're meditating on your breath or whether it's the seven full days where you begin to meditate on the sensations of your entire body, your effort is to concentrate on these neutral personal sensations. But what actually happens is your mind begins to bubble up with many different thoughts and feelings. Every once in a while, I meet someone who says, oh, I meditated and I had a completely quiet mind. My mind was pure and clear. My meditation was so silent. I know that person's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite happens, which is when you take away all the stimulation of life, there's no TV, there's no books, there's no person you're talking to, you're living in the silence of yourself. The only time you talk is when you talk to the teacher who's asking you, how are you doing? In that silence, your mind starts to run. It's like bubbling up. And what bubbles up initially are superficial things like, did I remember to lock the door? Who's going to feed the cat? Did I pay the electric bill? And as things bubble up, deeper and deeper psychological events within one's psyche bubble to the surface. All these events can be codified or categorized in in two categories. Of course, that's a great simplification, so it's just a way of talking about it. One category is things you want. So you begin to daydream, how can I get promoted at work? How can I get a longer vacation in winter to get away from cold, rainy California, which is supposed to be nice, but really is awful. (laughs) How can I get married if I'm single? How can my child get better grades in school? All the things that we want out of life, which for which we're always planning and scheming. When we start to meditate, start observing our breath, we're still planning and scheming. 
that's not wrong and that's not bad. We're not advocating that people don't plan their life. Of course, you should plan your life. But meditation is an effort to turn the dial down on that temporarily, at least for 10 days. But as you start, you can't turn the dial down at all. In fact, the effort to turn the dial down turns it up, a paradox. The other thing that happens in your mind is all your worries, all the things you're trying to get away from, all your fears. How can I avoid being fired? How can I avoid going into debt? How can I avoid remaining single if I'm single? How can I avoid having a child who's only getting B's when the neighbor's child's getting A's? How can I avoid all these problems? So the mind is filled with two things. One is craving for what you don't have, and the other is aversion for what you don't want. And as you're trying to meditate, your mind gets divided in three parts. One part is craving, one part is aversion, and one part is the purity, the concentration, the quiet, the calm of meditation. In the beginning, it's hard to get even one second of concentration. But as you practice, I said it takes 10 days, 10 days is the minimum, it takes a whole life, but in the, in the first 10-day course, in the first three days, you do improve. So just like anything, it's a matter of practice, and as you practice, you get slightly better. And when you get that calm of meditation, you get something that's completely new. It is not like the calm of reading a good book, watching television, talking to a friend, sitting at the beach, watching the waves. It's completely different calm because it has no stimulation. Even a beautiful scene, sitting on the beach, watching the waves, looking at the shorebirds, it's extremely pleasant. But the fact is the pleasure is connected to an external event. It is not auto-modulation. You're not really in charge of yourself when you're reading a book, when you're watching the beach, when you're talking to a friend. Something else is in charge of you, and that something else is the pleasant stimulation that you're inputting into your nervous system. So when you're meditating just on your breath, and you begin to get that calm and that focus. It's pure auto-modulation in pure silence, not connected to any other stimuli. That's the beginning of a new way of life. As you continue over the 10 days, deeper emotional reactions of deeper cravings and deeper aversions begin to come on the surface. So it isn't like you begin, you have craving aversion, then you get concentration, you concentrate perfectly for the rest of your life. The more you meditate, the more deeper things come up. The Buddha had an image for this. The image is based upon India. India has a hot monsoon climate, so during most of the year it's hot and dry. Then for a few months of the year, our North American summer, India's in the northern hemisphere, so June, July, August, maybe September, there's rain. So in May, it has not rained for almost an entire year, and all the water supplies are dried up. And the Buddha says, typically you find the water supplies are drying, they're shallow, and they're filled with pollutants. As the pure water evaporates, the salts, the chemicals, are left in this water. And it's getting hotter and hotter and drier and drier. still true in India today as it was 2,500 years ago. And then clouds come, and the first drop of water 
comes down and hits the stagnant pool. And that first drop of water is absolutely pure. It does not have salinity. It does not have chemicals from the desert. And when it breaks through into the puddle, it brings pure water. And it also brings some light and some air as it breaks the surface. And another drop of water comes in, brings light and air. Pretty soon there's a patter of rain. The monsoon is here. And then the monsoon comes hard in most of India. Hard rains breaking through into the stagnant pool, filling the stagnant pool with penetrating pure water, air, and light. That's the metaphor by which the Buddha explained Vipassana meditation. So in your mind is, is dark. You have not truly explored it. You've explored it one way or another, various other meditations or psychotherapies or thoughts. But in Vipassana, pure automodulation without any stimulation begins to enter into your mind and you bring light and air into the depth of your mind and the more you meditate, the more the light and air goes into the mind, raising the stagnation onto the surface, cleaning it out. Another feature of the pasana is that a sort of a paradox, maybe better said in irony, one is just sitting still, observing, observing one's breath, observing sensations of the body, It's effortless in the sense that one isn't running, one isn't reading, one isn't doing math. Yet it is effortful. Meditation is not the same thing as mere relaxation. Meditation should include relaxation. We'll say more about that. Hopefully it's very relaxing. But it's not mere relaxation. It is an effort. The Buddha said, "One, if you pick one word, if you're stuck, someone comes up to you and says, tell me about meditation, you've only got one word, then it's effort. You are trying to do something. You are trying to concentrate. And the effort of meditation, like the concentration of meditation, is itself educative. Meditation is a practice of exerting right effort in a calm and steady way without producing tension so it is relaxing but without failing to exert effort to balance so we could say meditation is auto-modulation and is learning the balance of how to exert continuous effort 10 day course continuous effort for 10 days without exhausting yourself, without striving too hard, without making yourself miserable, getting the relaxation you do want to get out of meditation, yet also putting out effort. So it's a training in an attitude or a capacity of the will. Now let's move on to the sensations. That's the important part of the Vipassana technique. What do I mean by sensations? And... um, Why are they the focus? We said at the beginning, one reason you focus on sensations is it's a neutral basis for meditation. It's not connected to any religious uh, word or idea or belief. So everybody, you know, there was a joke in Annie Hall 
everybody see Annual, greatest movie ever made. <laughs> and, and there's one part in the movie, uh, he, uh, the Woody Allen character's at a party, and uh, there's a Paul Simon character in that scene. And somebody goes, runs to the telephone and picks up the telephone and yells into the telephone, help me, I've forgotten my mantra. You can't forget your body sensations. They're always with you. So it's a non-sectarian focus, non-religious focus. That's good for Buddhistic type of people. It's good for humans. And you can't leave it at home. It's always with you. So you can always be meditating. But there are much deeper reasons to meditate on sensations. Let's go into what the body is and why body sensations are so important. There are basically... Of course, all my categorizations are slightly simplified, fit everything into an hour. So when I categorize the mind as filled with craving and aversion, obviously your mind has millions of thoughts. But they actually, if you study your mind, you'll see very heavily it's craving and aversion. Very occasionally, you're right in the moment. So if if we're talking about body sensations, there are actually two major causes of body sensations. And we'll look at these in a little bit of detail. One is creation. And the other is destruction. Human body consists of a collection of atoms. Only five kinds of atoms constitute almost all of your body. Every medical student, probably no medical students here, usually I give talks as I'm attacked by medical students. So carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen constitute almost all of what we are. How banal and boring. We're just the ordinary planned stuff. We're not even very fancy, although it is true that the the last 1% of us is absolutely critical. Without the rare trace elements in us, we wouldn't exist. One of the classic examples is iron is a trace element in our body, yet it's very important. All our hemoglobin that carries the oxygen in our blood uses iron. And, of course, there's cobalt in our vitamin B12. That's a very exotic thing. We're walking around with little chips of cobalt inside of us and if you don't have that cobalt you die but mostly we're carbon, oxygen, hydrogen and nitrogen and this part will be very familiar to all of you all of those atoms are not just floating around randomly they're organized there's very little random atomic motion in a body. There is some. We all have learned that free radicals are not too good for you. They can be carcinogenic. So there are some uh, atoms and ionized atoms that may be floating around in our body, but very, very high percent, much higher than 99% of our body is atoms that are put in place. So one way of describing the human body is a collection of atoms that are informatically organized. Once again, there are two categories of information. Actually, there's millions of categories of information, so we're going to just divide them in two for this talk. One category of information is the biological information by which we are human. We have, in every cell in our body, we have DNA. The DNA has a line of letters that each letter is actually a base, so it's not an atom. So there are many, many atoms making a base. There are many bases making the DNA. Each DNA is roughly 3 billion units long. 
we have approximately 100 trillion cells in our body. So the number of informatic units contained in the DNA in your body is 3 billion times 100 trillion. I keep asking somebody at one of these talks to give me the number that that is. A lot of information. Actually, that greatly underestimates the amount of information in your body for the following reason. One is that DNA is self-interacting. The, the great change that's happened in, let's say, in the past two, three, four decades, originally it was thought that DNA is a linear script of information. Now we know quite well that that's not true. DNA is itself auto-interacting and auto-regulating. So there are, are genes that turn on and turn off other genes. So the information is not just linear, but interactive and compounding. The other source of information in our body that's very important is the information in the prebiotic realm. And that means chemistry, for example. So DNA is a, a series of chemicals, and its base pairs are giving out biological information, saying things like, make this protein now, or don't make this protein now, turn this cell into a liver cell, turn this cell into a kidney cell. That's biological information in the DNA. But in the chemistry of which are carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, iron, cobalt, in that chemistry set that we are, there's also information that's saying things like bond to oxygen. So we have most of our chemicals, most of our molecules consist of carbon chains with varying oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, and then these other rare trace elements attached. So we're also using the information that's contained in chemical bonding, which is predominantly electromagnetism. There's a great biologist of the 20th century who said the eminence overlooking all of our lives is electromagnetism because everything in our body is responding to chemical information of bonds, chemical bonds. So now this... 100 trillion times 3 billion is the vast oversimplification, and the amount of information in our body is very, very big. And it's taking little atoms of oxygen and hydrogen and saying, go here, go here, go into this molecule, now bond to this molecule, now break with this molecule, now make a blood cell, now make a liver cell. You start out with one cell, and we consist of about 100 trillion cells. That's obviously a guess. But that's a great underestimate of the amount of information it takes to build a human body because our cells are being made and broken down all the time. You know that if you cut yourself, there's a hole in your skin, and then in three days or a week, it heals up. So you're manufacturing skin cells all the time. Actually, our blood cells are being manufactured by the billions every month. So that means you're making all those new cells. You're also breaking down new cells. So the creation of the human body looked at, at from an informatic standpoint is unbelievably complicated. Now, roughly how many atoms are involved in this big chemistry set of which we consist? There's this thing which... Uh, all of us were tortured by a freshman year of college. Most of you were probably science majors, so Avogadro's number 
it tells you how many actual atoms are in a gram of material based upon the atomic number of the material. If you don't remember that, if you're lucky, forget about it. But it just gives you a way of knowing about how many atoms are in a body, let's say, if, if we say our body is uh, 70 kilograms, just for example. The number comes out to be something like 10 octillion atoms in the human body. So we're making this human body it's in constant motion. It's constantly being created. Cells are constantly using those atoms to make new cells. Old cells are constantly being broken down because you don't want to have bad old cells, for example, in your blood supply. You need new cells. All of that is the creation of the human body, and all of that is subtly producing sensations inside of you. You're manufacturing and generating motion of atomic particles, creation of molecules, creation of cells, movement of cells, and it's going on at a very high speed. There's a famous poem in the English language, John Milton's poem on his blindness. John Milton was a English poet about the time of the English Revolution, and uh, he believed in a personalized divine, so it doesn't quite fit our modern conception. But he talked about the divine power. He said, thousands at his bidding, speed and post over land and ocean without rest. And that reminds me of the modern sense of how our body is created. Speed and post over land and ocean without rest. Constant, constant, constant recreation of our body built out of the template, built out of the chemistry, built out of the physics of the universe. But, bad news. Entropy. At this point, I always quote my friend who said, the way to understand entropy, I have a, a friend who He's intelligent, but unfortunately, he majored in English. So his skills are limited. So he said, the only way I can really understand entropy, what that means, is to go into a teenager's room. <laughs> Everything falls apart. Everything disassociates. Everything expands. Edwin Hubble discovered the universe is expanding. Now we know it's very complicated. We can't quite figure it out. Dark energy. Will the universe empty itself out? Will it recontract? I don't know. But everything disaggregates. All aggregates disaggregate. Our body falls apart. So the sensations in our body are a product of the creation of our body from the octillions of atoms that we consist of that are informatically organized into a being. And the sensations in our body consist of the disaggregation and decay of our body. The first lesson I had in this, I was I grew up in an era where it was uh, just television was just coming into the world, and uh, there really was only one sport that captured the American imagination. That was baseball. So I grew up with very intense 
New York Yankees fan. I say it in a low voice. God knows what you people think of the New York Yankees. And I learned as a small child at about age 35, you're done. And the Milwaukee team had a pitcher, Warren Spahn. I don't know if his name has gone down in history. Warren Spahn pitched till he was 44 years old. A phenomenon that anybody could throw a fastball, 41, 42, 43 years old. After 44, even Warren Spahn was done. The human body is not that durable. Entropy sets in. It sets in in different parts of the body at different rates. So your reflexes decline, and you can't be a pitcher, you can't be a baseball player, but your mind is very active. Your mind stays active for decades, but eventually everything decays. And that decay we feel in our body, and those of you who are over 35 begin to complain, my back, my shoulder, all kinds of complaints set in. And we create this gigantic health industry that guarantees you'll stay young forever, as if they never heard of entropy. You will not stay young forever. So the body is being created and destroyed, and the atoms are being located and dislocated and relocated and dislocated. And all of that you feel in the different qualities of sensation in your body. But if you meditate systematically, and the actual teaching of the Buddha is you meditate with constant, thorough understanding that every sensation that you feel in your body is based upon the arising and the passing of small particles. It is quite amazing to me that actually the Buddha did discover entropy. He said, all compounded things decay. They clearly understood entropy. But then again, meditation is not just about entropy, it's also about the creation and destruction, constant change. So the one thing that you feel, when you feel the sensations of your body, and by sensations of the body, it means anything. It means pain in your back. It means itchy feeling in your nose. But as you become a meditator, even in 10 days, this happens for most people, constant, thorough meditation leads you to awareness of a very, very large array of previously unknown unnameable sensations for which there's no English word. And you meditate on this arising and passing of sensations. Now, after I'd gone through this huge explanation, the question arises, so what? What is the point? Well, there are a few points. One is, as I mentioned at the beginning, your mind is distracting you from meditation with craving and aversion. And at the same time, you're not entirely distracted and you practice breathing and being aware of breathing and then you practice awareness of sensations. And as you become aware of sensations, your mind and your body, of course, are two sides of a coin. And the sensations you feel in your body are mirrored by thoughts you have in your mind and thoughts you have in your mind are mirrored by sensations you have in your body. And the entire time, you're just sitting there calmly trying to observe the sensations of your body 
but in fact, you are also observing your mind. Your mind is a product of your body. That, to prove that experiment, if you try to cut off your head and think, you'll find that you can't think without the rest of your body. There's some misconception that your mind is in the nervous system. That's a misconception of the 21st century medical establishment. But your mind is in your entire body. Um, even medicine acknowledges, say, your thyroid gland, your adrenal gland, your blood flow. Your entire body influences your thoughts, and your thoughts influence your entire body. So as you're meditating on the sensations of your body, you're meditating on your mind. And what you're doing is practicing just observing without commenting, without editing, without reacting. And so literally you are merely practicing being calm, peaceful, and in balance with yourself. The final analysis of Vipassana meditation, the Buddha described it as, it's just a training in equanimity. But the trick or the key that made the Buddha, or that makes Vipassana meditation, is that instead of simply trying to observe your mind and say, be calm, be calm, don't crave, don't be afraid. Instead, you're somewhat turning away from your mind, turning towards your body, which contains the fundamental reality of who and what we are and who and what we are not. What we are is matter, energy, information, and entropy, compounded temporarily, and all compounded things decay. That's what we are. And what we're not is all the fantasies, wishes, and fears that preoccupy us and lead us astray. So the Buddha is giving a training how to be calm and peaceful with yourself at the fundamental level, which gets you out of your mind into your body and gives you a vehicle for observing your mind without becoming embroiled within it. One other feature, one other way of describing Vipassana is that it is not only a training in being calm, which it is, or relaxing. It's not only relaxing. There's some effort, but it's also relaxing. It's not just concentration, though it is concentration, but it's also a reorganization of character. The meditator who takes to meditating and who continues meditating in the morning and evening for the rest of their life, that person is reorganizing their character around a new central attractor. We know that complex systems rotate around central attractors, like the climate of planet Earth rotates around some kind of attractor, which we may be eliminating or changing, destroying. And in the case of a meditator who takes the meditation, they're changing the center of the attraction and personality. The attraction before was external stimuli of varying kinds, many of which are perfectly good things, but maybe not central to the meaning of your life. And as you become a meditator, your character is reorganized so that the center of your life becomes awareness, 
of the reality of who you are and equanimity or calm with that awareness. That doesn't mean you're calm always, perfectly, all the time. It means that becomes the, the main signal that you're sending out into the world. So finally, two other points that now might be quite obvious, but just to say them about meditation. One point is it looks self-absorbed. In fact, when I started meditating back in the 70s, there was a lot of criticism of meditation. It's self-absorbed. It's picking your own navel. It's uh, narcissistic. But when you go to engineering school or when you go to medical school, you sit in a room and you just study. And nobody criticizes you that you're narcissistic. It's understood that when you're finished studying, you'll go out and do something with your engineering degree or you'll go out and do something with your medical degree. Meditation is the same. Nobody just meditates. The Buddha did not just meditate. Everybody gets up from meditating and goes out and lives. And when you go out and live, you're bringing this new, newly empowered signal, newly centralized signal of relative peace and equanimity. Nobody attains perfect peace and equanimity unless the Buddha. Increased peace and equanimity becomes the center of the signal that you're emitting into a social context. And everybody goes out back into the social context. So meditation is fundamentally and essentially a social act which you practice in private, but which you then emit into your human community. Another feature, though, two of the most famous statements of the Buddha, one is all compounded things decay. That's the discovery of entropy 2,500 years ago. And the second important thing he said was, we are fundamentally social creatures, and the most important thing in life is friendship. But we are also born and die alone. And therefore, each person needs to have a lamp or a light inside themselves. And he encouraged every person to be a lamp or a light inside yourself. So the common sense description of meditation is constant, thorough, realistic observation of the arising and passing of all the constituents of which you consist with the awareness that all things will decay, including yourself, with the practice of equanimity or calm in relation to that, with the emitting of that into the human community, and with that internal light glowing within you. So let's stop and we can have questions.
stillness and, and sitting. I know that uh, there are a few of us here that have done the 10 day, you know, uh, extending the silence and such. And then the thing I think the challenge that most people have is about carving out the time to spend sit for an hour on a daily basis. Is there, I mean, I would assume that there is even just uh, relative value to even just trying to take 10 minutes if you can't do an hour or just 10 minutes of stillness a day. Um, do you suggest, I mean, is there, is there sort of varying benefits? Like, is it probably better to do 10 minutes than nothing? Um, or is it better to try to sit, you know, once a week for an hour or so? Do you have any thoughts around that? Yes, I do. Are you in some other room? Is, it, is this a person from across the world? Yes. <laughs> okay, from Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Are you a meditator yourself? Um, I am. I mean, I, I did the 10-day Vipassana course, and I spent for two months I was able to sit and um, do the one hour in the morning when I woke up. But I think that, um, I don't know, probably like many people, when life changes and gets busy, yeah. uh, even though this is important, I understand the benefits of it, and I, I value the benefits of it. I've not made it as much a priority as everything else, to be frank. Okay. So, um, I would, you know, I'm sure any practice is better than none. I just wanted your thoughts of Okay. You know, how to become a more regular practitioner. Good. Um, we have, yeah. uh, a, a couple nights ago, I gave a talk uh, exclusively to people who've already taken one of these courses, so uh, so-called old students, and we spent most of the time on that question. So that's the biggest question most people have, which is, I come home, I benefited from the course, I loved it, I learned a lot, it was very good, and how can I continue it under the pressure of the world? There are several components to the answer. One is a virtuous cycle. The more that you meditate, the more that you get out of your meditation, the less willing you will be to miss it. So, And conversely, the less regularly you meditate, the less value your meditation will have, the more willing you'll be to miss it. So there is a stage where willpower... Uh, is part of the issue to um, take a, a determination to try to meditate regularly. And we do recommend twice a day. And the reason we recommend twice a day is human beings are diurnal animals. We have a waking cycle and a, a declining cycle. So we certainly recommend that. And the more you do make that effort, which sometimes in the beginning feels artificial, the more it will become part of you. It'll take. It'll become so meaningful you won't want to miss it. Another uh, approach, however, is if you find a lot of people find that they try to sit two hours a day, they find it impossible, then they uh, sit uh, less, then they feel guilty that they're not doing the two hours a day, and then the guilt drives them away. So you should avoid creating an atmosphere of guilt you should avoid an atmosphere that this is belongs to somebody else. Your meditation belongs to you. It doesn't matter what other people recommend. It's your possession. And um, one way of breaking that cycle I described is you just take a vow that you agree. I will not break this vow no matter what. I will sit for one minute. Then next week you do that for a full week. Next week, I'll sit for two minutes. Two minutes, not very hard. Three minutes. The end of a month, you're still only sitting four minutes. The end of a year, you're sitting an hour. The end of two years, you're sitting two hours a day. 
Yeah. And then that, that's great advice. Thank you. Okay. Um, the other question I have for you Whoops. is, you know, I know, um, you know, in a very big way to each his own, right? Whatever works best for each individual. Um, I'm curious, do you think that there is, this is a personal question, my brother, uh, so I have done it and both my other brothers have done this, uh, done the 10-day course. And it's interesting because for one of my brothers, he came out of it and it didn't really affect him much, which I find hard to believe. Um, because I think fun, at a fundamental level, it affects your consciousness um, and sort of your level of awareness. But I'm um, curious what your thoughts are on, you know, I'm sure everyone's at different phases in their life and different levels of awareness and consciousness where it shifts. Sure. Sure. Everyone, everyone is different, and of course, it's like saying playing the piano. Different people have different abilities. But one thing we find is that very frequently, this is a very frequent pattern, people take a course and they say, oh, that was interesting, it was good, but they don't stick with it. And then six years later or nine years later or four and a half months later or occasionally 20 years later, they come back to it. So it's partly... Uh, a person's level of interest in the, in meditation, but it's partly a life stage issue, and it has to do with how busy people are, how mature people are, what issues are impacting upon them. So let's watch your brother. Give me a phone call in 20 years and <laughs> let me know how he does. <laughs> take some questions from here now. If you learn outside of your environment, going back into your environment, you may fall back into the same habits, i.e. vacation. Uh, Yes, that's true. That's true. So I started by saying the 10-day course is of great value because you meditate under many different mental conditions, and that makes you relatively experienced even within 10 days. But then it does all occur in the special environment of a meditation center. It does not occur in the environment of telephones, computers, televisions, parents, children, etc. So that's quite true, and that's the first question pointed that out. That is, it is a challenge to keep meditating. Um, You know, in the old days, like in the Buddha's day, uh, human beings, the human being, as I said, using my baseball analogy, actually genetically were programmed to begin to die at about age 35. Human beings did not live as long as we now live. Life was shorter and filled with infections, etc. So they had certain challenges then, but they certainly didn't have stupid music breaking into their brain every 15 seconds from the cell phone of the person next to them. So we have certain challenges today that they didn't have. And yes, it's a challenge to go back and to establish yourself as a meditator. Next question on this card is, kids, what age? We have children's courses that are very short and uh, there's children's courses, there's teenagers' courses, and there's adult courses. To take a 10-day adult course, you have to be 18. I think occasionally the 17s are allowed in. Is that a correct? Yeah. Rarely. So 18 is the actual minimum. Uh, and uh, people under 18 take uh, much shorter, much easier courses. Um, outcome is different for people with effort or without effort? Absolutely. But if you go to a 10-day course... You're living in silence and meditation. There's no TV. There's no computer. There's nothing else to do. So you kind of have to put in the effort. (laughs) Everybody gets some experience from that. 
Um, and, uh, there's more written on this, but just to jump to this next one. Uh, for what age should kids go to Vipassana at 18? Uh, people with disability like blindness, deafness, um, do they have better auto-regulation? Not necessarily. Um, they have reduced sensorium in one area, but they may have expanded sensorium in another area. Furthermore, auto-regulation is a full psychological capacity, not a, a single sensory capacity. And uh, I thought the question was going to be, do people with, can people with disabilities take the course? I would say we make every effort to try to make our centers compatible. But uh, for 10 days, if a person has disability, best they write and find out if their disability is compatible with the setup of the center. We do have uh, speakers, you know, high-intensity speakers for deaf people. Blindness wouldn't be a problem. Given that sensations and the mind are mirrors, do you have thoughts on why one should not focus on our thoughts instead of our sensations? I find that there is learning there as well. That learning there must mean on thoughts. Yes, that's an excellent question. It goes to the heart of the talk. Of course, there's nothing wrong with observing your thoughts and learning to be calm with them. Obviously, that's an intelligent thing to do. We all do that all the time. All of us have what you call an internal narrative or an internal pattern in which we're commenting upon our thoughts. We say, whoa, calm down, don't get excited. Or we say, yay, Obama's going to win again. (laughs) So there's an internal discourse, and we hope that our internal discourse is one that gives us a certain amount of poise and calm in life rather than one that accentuates our anxiety or our ill-ease. But the point of meditation is that it goes beyond cognitive discourse. It goes into the heart or the essence of what a human being is at a level that's much, much deeper than mere cognition. It goes into the absolute essence of the human being as a complex system of matter, energy, information, entropy, and brings you calm from that level. And that's different than a mere cognitive or verbal level. Is the observation of sensations and their arising in cessation related to selflessness as discussed in Buddhism? Yes. The the concept of selflessness in Buddhism has become um, misinterpreted and not well understood in the West, so I didn't bring up the word selflessness. The Buddha did teach selflessness, or selflessness is one English word that's applied to the Buddha's teaching. The concept of selflessness is simply the observation that we are temporary aggregates and that we disappear. And there is no enduring little walnut inside your pineal gland that will last for eternity. So, yes, that's exactly what the observation of the rising and passing of sensations is. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariyati, a nonprofit publisher who offers written, 
audio, and video content, and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariyati.org. That is www.pariyati.org. For more information on Vipassana meditation, including a schedule of courses taught throughout the world, please go to www.dhamma.org. That is www.dhamma.org.